Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Really pumped that you're joining us today. As always, we are brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash here in apologetics. Today I'm joined by Will Craig, no relation to William Lane Craig, a PhD student at the University of Virginia studying mathematics. Uh, we're going to be talking about the argument from mathematics for the existence of God. I figured it'd be no better than have a mathematician on to kind of explain this argument. We're going to break it down. Will's going to give a presentation, and then we're going to go through a lot of like common objections that we'll see to this argument. So, Will, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm really excited to talk about this because I think... Yeah argument uh, we were talking pre-stream too is very misunderstood. So I'm mm -hmm. hoping that uh, for the Christian here, that you can kind of maybe understand the argument more fully through listening to this. And for the skeptic, maybe we can hopefully clear up some kind of like misconceptions you have of the argument. But just to start off, Will, I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about like who you are, who is this Will Craig person in case no one knows uh, who this man is. Maybe they're like, oh, wait, this isn't like that 70-year-old man, William Lang Craig, that we all know. So tell us who you are and how you're going to carry on the Craig legacy in apologetics. Well, I, I, I certainly hope I can carry on that legacy. I discovered apologetics uh, on accident by Googling my name, actually. And I learned a lot from him early on. So that was uh, a lot of fun. So uh, yeah, my name is also uh, William Craig. I go by Will, though, not Bill. So that's how you can tell us apart. Also, the fact that he's significantly older than I am. Uh, I am a second-year PhD student at the University of Virginia studying mathematics. Uh, my area of study is uh, number theory, mostly analytic number theory and combinatorics. Uh, just to give you kind of an idea of one thing that I study, uh, I study something called the partition function. Uh, so the partition function takes as its input some uh, positive whole number, one, two, three, four, five, et cetera. And the output is the number of different ways you could add up numbers to make that number. So say for three, you could uh, have one plus one plus one, you could have one plus two, or you could have three. So there are three ways to partition three. And so P of three would be three. And I study the way uh, some of the properties of this uh, this function. It's, a, it's very prominent in lots of different areas of math and even physics actually, it shows up there too. Uh, so that's uh, that's kind of the biggest area that I focus on is things relating to um, that. Awesome. Sounds like all kinds of fun stuff, even though I can't get like past calculus. So you know a little bit about more than me and that. Uh, but what we're going to do now is I'm going to share Will's screen if you're listening uh, via YouTube. And then if you're listening via podcast, just know that there's going to be slides in the background. So if you want to see the slides, you can go on YouTube. Uh, Will's going to present the argument. It's going to take about 15, 20, 25 minutes, something in that mm -hmm. range. And then we're going to go through objections. And then we'd love to get to you guys' questions, see if questions about the argument. Be sure to put them in the live chat, and we will get to those uh, after this presentation part. So, Will, I'll give it to you. And whenever you want, feel free to get going. Yeah, so b before I start, uh, is did you put the link to my blog in the in the description? Yes, there is a link to okay. the mathematical.com in the description. So I'd encourage everyone to check out Will's blog. Really yes, great blog. Yeah, also, the, the reason I was thinking of that is I actually have a link there to my uh, professional website for uh, my my uh, Will Craig Qua Mathematician site. And if you're interested in uh, looking more into what I am working on, you can find some of my papers on that website. 
Awesome. Well, it's the link down below so everyone can follow William L. Craig's work, even though it may not be the William L. Craig you were thinking <laughs> of. But you will become yeah. the William L. Craig, I believe, before it's all said and done. Oh, uh, well, I, I, that would be fun, but I don't know about that. <laughs> all right. So I'm uh, here talking about the argument from mathematics for God's existence, or more uh, longer title would be the argument from the applicability of mathematics to the physical sciences for God's existence. So first, we're just going to kind of go through some ideas of what this actually is all about, what the context is. So uh, we, this is all uh, largely based off of a paper of Eugene Wigner, who is a uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist and mathematician from the uh, 20th century, uh, and an atheistic one, by the way. And he wrote an essay that was published in a, uh, in a fairly prominent journal that had at its end the following quote, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. Now, something we should pay attention to here is this is an atheist using the word miracle for something. So this should stand out as something quite surprising. Whatever this is, this must be a very surprising thing. And so to understand this quote, before we can really get into what it means, we need to go through a few related topics that are built into that quote. We need to understand better what mathematics is. We need to understand what physics is. We need to understand what it means for something to be in the language of mathematics. And we need to understand why this would be a miracle at all in, in any sense of the word miracle. So if you want to read Wigner's essay, which I highly recommend, it's actually very readable. Even if you don't know much about math or physics, you can still understand the majority of it pretty, uh, pretty readily. And uh, so I highly recommend reading that. I also wrote a summary of his article, uh, kind of boiling it down on my blog. So if you go there, you can find a reference for the article and a summary of the article. So first, we're going to uh, try to understand better what mathematics is, uh, as will probably become clear uh, later. This is where I think most of the misunderstandings about this argument come from. So we're going to focus pretty heavily on this, understanding what mathematics is really about. So I've uh, put down two versions of this argument, an informal version and a formal version that will help uh, kind of that should help people understand what's going on. So premise one of the, in, of the informal version is that mathematics is its own world, which includes a lot of crazy or impossible ideas that mathematicians came up with for their own enjoyment. The formal premise one, you can see below, mathematical concepts arise from aesthetic impulses in humans and have no causal connection to the physical world. So what we need to understand here is what is this aesthetic impulse thing all about and why is this important and what does it mean? And uh, a lot of people think that mathematics is really all about real-world application, but was, as we're about to see, that couldn't really be further from the truth. It's almost exactly the opposite. So drawing on uh, a quote from a famous 20th century mathematician, G.H. Hardy, also an atheist, but this, uh, this quote, the quotes I'm doing from him have nothing to do with uh, physics, really. Uh, Any genuine mathematician must feel that it is not on these crude achievements and in context, this is referring to science. He calls science crude, that the real case for mathematics rests, and that the popular reputation of mathematics is based largely on ignorance and confusion. 
So this is again an emphasis on what I've already been saying. And this is generally, I think, I think most mathematicians would agree with me that the general public horribly misunderstands what it is that we're actually doing. So to give an example of some different kinds of mathematics that are um, not really at all related to these crude achievements of science. Uh, so the complex numbers. So the, the complex numbers are defined by this weird looking property right here. I squared equals negative one. If you remember your elementary school, if you remember the class when you learned about negative numbers, you should remember that any number squared is positive, but that's not true for the complex numbers. So when we invent these, we're just, we're blatantly violating the basic rules of multiplication just because we feel like it really. There's not really any other reason to it than that. It's because we wanna see what happens if we do violate this rule. And then there are generalizations of the complex numbers called quaternions and octonions that break even more of the rules of multiplication, namely uh, the commutative property that I times J is J times I, that's not true anymore. And in the octonians, you can't even use parentheses anymore, or rather you have to use them because the associative property no longer works. Uh, more examples, uh, I deal a lot with something called projective space where you actually let infinity be a geometrical point, And then you do math under that assumption. Uh, there are lots of examples of infinite dimensional spaces. We live in a uh, physical three-dimensional space or four-dimensional, depending on how you count them. But there are certainly no infinite dimensional spaces in our space time. And yet in mathematics, they're everywhere. Uh, there are these things called non-Hausdorff topological spaces, which is kind of weird, but basically what that means is if you draw two points, you can't draw circles around the points that don't touch each other anymore. There is no such thing as points being like separate from one another in some sense of the word. So again, that is completely unrelated to anything we experience in reality. And then there are a few other examples, homology groups, category theory. You can look those up if you want to. I'm not even gonna try to explain what those are here because they're so far removed from anything we experience day to day that I don't even think I could like boil them down to anything that we experience day to day. Uh, if you wanna read uh, more from, I'll be quoting this a lot more, but if uh, the, like the essay, uh, A Mathematician's Apology by this guy, G.H. Hardy, if you wanna understand what mathematicians think about what we do, that is a really, really good source. It's, it's I think every, basically everyone would agree it's the best one out there for understanding how a mathematician thinks about his mathematics. So I'm gonna take a few more quotes out of this book. So a it's, we have here a mathematician like a painter or a poet is a maker of patterns. You can read the rest of the quote for yourself, but notice that we're comparing math to painting and poetry. And in my experience in the mathematical community, this is how all mathematicians think about their math. They don't think about it having anything to do with the real world. They just think about it as they're coming up with these beautiful ideas and they're making things look pretty in their mathematical sort of way. But it's not just that. Uh, the best mathematics also has to be serious, by which we basically mean if it's connected in some kind of an interesting and illuminating way to a large number of other mathematical ideas that we, that we already have in place. So like, if you can come up with an idea that connects two types of math, like say geometry and algebra, that 
weren't related before, like our Rene Descartes did when he came up with his analytic geometry, aka the XY plane. That was a big thing. That's a very serious piece of mathematics because it connects two ideas that were completely unrelated before that time. Up until that time, geometry and algebra had nothing at all to do with each other, but Descartes put them together. And so that would be something like what we mean by it being serious or significant. And here, uh, there is a relation between the seriousness and the beauty. Even as in poetry, the beauty of a line may depend to some extent on the significance of the ideas which it contains. So there is some kind of a relationship here between a serious piece of mathematics and a beautiful piece of mathematics. But as you can see from the quote above, the seriousness has nothing to do with whether or not it has real world applications. Usually the serious pieces of mathematics probably aren't gonna have real world applications. And just to show you how seriously we take this beauty, there is no permanent place in the world for ugly mathematics. No one wants it around. It all goes away if it's ugly. Only the beautiful things remain after a couple hundred years, sometimes even less than that. Sometimes maybe a few decades or even a few years. No one cares about the ugly stuff anymore. So one thing, this is very exciting. I'm just gonna give you some examples of things that are accessible and hopefully easy to understand that a mathematician would call a beautiful piece of mathematics. So here is a theorem. This is a way of saying a, uh, a true statement of math that has been proven to be true logically. Uh, there are infinitely many prime numbers. Prime numbers are just numbers that you can't factor. For example, uh, six is not prime because six is two times three, but two and three are both primes because you can't factor two and three down any further. So to show, you to show you why this is true, let's suppose that we're wrong about this. Let's, uh, let's guess that we actually can write out all the prime numbers, P1, P2, up to Pn. And this is just a way of representing our full list of all the primes. And then we're gonna define this cool number capital N. This is, it's certainly, a, I mean, because, uh, because there are only finitely many primes, this is a finite number. Uh, we don't know what it is, but it must exist. And so we're gonna think about this capital number N. N, uh, you can see from the definition of N that it's definitely bigger than all of the prime numbers. So N's not prime because it's bigger than all of them. So since it's not prime, it must factor somehow. And if you factor numbers, all numbers must eventually factor down into primes. So one of these primes must be a factor of my number N. Call it PJ. J could be anything from one to N, but if that's the case, if n is divisible by pj, well then the sum of primes, uh, the product of primes rather, p1, p2 up to pn, is also a multiple of pj. And that would mean that one would also have to be a multiple of pj. But that is not true. One is not a multiple of any prime number. Therefore, n cannot be factored. But it can be factored. We already established that. So n both is and is not a prime number. This is a problem because uh, contradictions can never be true. And since we've arrived at a contradiction, we must have gone wrong somewhere. And where we went wrong was assuming that our list of primes had an end to it. Therefore, there are infinitely many prime numbers. This is one of my favorite proofs. It's a really, really cool one. And this is also one of my favorite ones here. The square root of two being an irrational number, which means writing the square root of two in a fraction is impossible. So like before, let's try doing that. Let's try writing the square root of two as a fraction and just see what happens. 
And we'll put it in lowest terms because all fractions can be put in lowest terms. So that's not a problem. Now we're just going to toy around with this equation a little bit. We can square both sides and we can multiply that b squared over. And then we get a squared is equal to 2b squared. Now, if you look at this equation, a squared has to be even because it's a multiple of 2. It's 2 times b squared. But if a is even, or if a squared is even, then a must also be even. And now we can do something similar. Being even means that we can write a equals 2c. And then we can do kind of the same trick that we just did with a and b to arrive at the equation b squared is equal to 2c squared. But just like with a, we now know that b is even. But uh, we assumed that a over b was in lowest terms at the beginning. So there was no cancellation we could do. But now we can cancel 2 from our fraction. So the fraction a over b both is and is not a fraction in lowest terms. That's a contradiction. So there cannot be any fraction like that. Therefore, the square root of 2 is never equal to a fraction. So why are these beautiful? Well, one, uh, being general is good, meaning being uh, general basically means being applicable to many situations. So you can just very slightly modify the second proof that I did to deal with the square root of any prime number or of a cube root of two or a fifth root of two or tons and tons of other numbers. And that makes this a very good, very beautiful argument because it works in lots of situations. It's also uh, very simple. If you look through these proofs, I never used anything harder than multiplication or division in either of them, unless you consider doing contradictions harder. But I'm in terms of the actual calculational aspect, I never did anything harder than division in either of them. So these are quite simple proofs, but they use these very simple ideas to get to really crazy cool results, like the fact that there are numbers that are not fractions. That's not obvious at all, but now we know that there are some numbers like that. Permanence is another one. Permanence would roughly mean being something that'll last forever because of its interest. The noblest ambition is that of leaving behind something of permanent value. Immortality may be a silly word, but probably a mathematician has the best chance of whatever it may mean. Another quote from a mathematician's apology, uh, and this represents the spirit of what we mean by mathematics being permanent, a search for a truth that we will be talking about 2,000 years from now, like we're still talking about the mathematics that the ancient Greeks did, even though it was 2,000 years ago, because it is permanent. Abstraction. So knowing the square root of 2 is irrational cannot really matter in the real world, because in the real world, all we're ever doing is we're just using like calculator approximations of the square root of 2. We're not using the actual number here. And also, irrational numbers can't actually be written down as decimals. Well, they can, but the decimals are infinitely long and basically random. So knowing that it's irrational will never give us any practical help with anything, because we just use approximations in the real world. But the abstraction makes it beautiful that we've learned something about it, a, a reality that is in some sense beyond our physical world. And that also makes these results beautiful. A similar thing for the prime numbers. We're never going to count up to infinity. That's not possible. And so we could never actually count all the primes. We will only ever know what a finite number of them are. But knowing that there are infinitely many of them, that's more conceptual. And that is beautiful. And the significance. This is going back to a quote from earlier. Beautiful mathematical theorems will tell us something important, like 
the example I mentioned earlier that not all numbers are fractions. That's entirely non-obvious and very interesting once you learn it. And so, and once you learn it, you can start studying these numbers that aren't fractions. You can ask questions about them, like how many of them are there? Are they common? Are they uncommon? How like how well are they like medium common? Uh, what are the are, are there things about them that are different than numbers that are fractions? You can ask all these interesting questions now about this new idea because you've discovered something significant here. There are lots of other things you might think of as things that are beautiful in mathematics, like symmetry, even asymmetry sometimes, if it's, uh, there are certain very nice kinds of asymmetry. Uh, things, there's this quote, isomorphism. What that really means is two things. They're kind of like realizing that uh, two different things are actually somehow the same way of writing down one thing. That's what we mean by isomorphism. Uh, so that's a cool that's a cool thing as well, that all that's always a beautiful thing to find. And being broad and having great conceptual depth also brings out beauty. And now most of us already know pretty much what the intuitive grounding of physics is. I'll speed through this one a bit. Going back to the argument, uh, there are this is listed as premise three. That's because in the actual formulation, it flows better uh, with the premise number being three rather than two. But the idea here is that we actually do find all of these crazy mathematical ideas out there in the real world. So what are we talking about with this? What, are, what does it mean that the laws of nature can be formulated as mathematical descriptions, which are often significantly effective in physics? Well, we already know a lot about science generally from our school background. So this should be mostly easy to understand. But when we're studying physics, we're studying the physical universe. So we're, we're talking about objects that are out there made of material or uh, forces acting on those materials or things of this sort. When you're doing physics, your end goal is to provide explanation for how the physical world works. Notice this doesn't necessarily have to be a mathematical explanation. Your, your goal is to explain what's going on in the physical world, not necessarily mathematically. If math works, then the physicist will want to use math. But if math does not work, the physicist would not want to use math because that's not their goal. Their goal is to describe the physical world we observe around us and how things interact. And some people might have some doubts about whether or not physics has to be mathematical. Some people might think it does, but lots of sciences are partially non-mathematical or very much non-mathematical. Like consider psychology, for example. There's almost no mathematics in psychology. As far as I can, I, I can only think of one time when it comes up, and that's if you're doing some kind of like a statistical survey, but that's not really psychology. You're like, you're not going to find a bunch of equations in any of Freud's writings, for example. And a lot of parts of biology can be like that too. Like most of evolutionary biology isn't per se mathematical. None of the axioms of evolution per se are mathematical. The idea is just that living things that tend to live longer and reproduce more will dominate the population. That's not a statement of math. That's just a statement of biology. And so it's not immediately clear then that physics has to use math. Um, another thing, physicists do like their beautiful theories. You can find plenty of physicists saying that, and they certainly do like their beautiful theories, but that's not really their end goal. It's one of their end goals, but it's not the most important one. The most important one is whether their theories actually describe the world around them. 
And although physics is not by definition built up from mathematics, as I've been saying, the laws of physics as we know them today are formulated entirely in terms of mathematical language, along with definitions of elementary particles and things of that sort. But it's mostly mathematical language. A famous quote on this point, the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. And that is a quote from Galileo. So this idea that nature is written in the language of math is very, very old in the history of science. Some examples of this, Newton's law of gravity, you can see that's a mathematical equation. There's, it's a con The force is equal to a constant G times two masses divided by R squared. And Newton's law of cooling, similar. You have these different mathematical constants being multiplied together. Now, uh, we've talked about what math and physics are, but why is it so surprising that these things are connected? We've become so used to it today, so we need to slow down and think about this. We, our premise, too, is that it really would be surprising if those crazy invented ideas from mathematics actually show up in the real world. Here's the formal version of the premise. It would be surprising to find that what arises from the aesthetic impulse in humans and has no causal connection to the physical world should be so significantly effective in physics. So the key thing here is surprising. Why is it surprising? Why, are, why is the appearance of all this mathematics surprising? After all, most of you probably are not surprised yourselves to see that because we're so used to it. But in fact, it is surprising. So here are some of the big differences between math and physics that need to be taken into account that I see, oh, uh, that I see as a mathematician actually hit the wrong button. So when, when mathematicians are doing their math, they're not looking for something that physically applies. They're just looking for things that are beautiful to them, that, that show them the kind of mathematical beauty that we were talking about earlier. And I'm just listing some examples of things in math like that, complex numbers, higher dimensional Riemann manifolds, and those show up in general relativity, but general, but they were invented Prob they were invented before Einstein was even born by a guy who wasn't doing physics. Infinite dimensional Hilbert spaces, uh, according to Wigner, I don't know quantum mechanics well, but according to Wigner, these things show these these things show up in science as well. I believe it's somewhere in quantum mechanics. You have analytic functions, modular forms. Modular forms are what I study, and they show up in the theory of black holes. Uh, zeta functions show up in a lot of uh, abstract physics. I also study zeta functions. You have Hermitian matrices. Those are related to uh, certain uh, certain parts of atomic physics, and et cetera, et cetera. We can keep it going on. The point here is none of these things were created by people doing physics. They were all created by mathematicians just having fun with their numbers and doing whatever they feel like doing and proving cool things about all, all of these. All of these areas have some really cool theorems. Uh, for example, if you if you know anything about Fermat's last theorem, modular forms and analytic functions and zeta functions are all closely related to the proof of Fermat's last theorem, which was which hit the news in the late 90s. Uh, so if and another big difference, if mathematical objects exist at all, then they're abstract objects. Abstract objects are uh, by definition things that do not causally interact with the physical world. Uh, it's a very philosophically heavy language. If you don't know what they are, then just think about it like this. If there is one entity that is the number seven, then the number seven doesn't do stuff. Like the number seven isn't going to like push over my cat 
or anything like that. It's not a it's not a physical object of any sort. It's not a force. It's not a charge. It's nothing like that. It's nothing like any physical object. But physics, of course, is not studying abstract objects. Physics is studying concrete objects, objects that interact with our physical world and are material in their nature. And so these are very, very different areas. So it's not at all obvious why these things would, why these abstract objects, if they even exist at all, would be related to these concrete physical objects. Another difference, physical theories can at least in principle be overturned by more data. A great example of this would be Newton's law of gravity versus general relativity. Newton's law of gravity does a really good job, but additional data showed it had some problems with certain, uh, certain situations, and then general relativity fixed those problems. And so Newton's laws, although they really are still true, they're just not as good as general relativity. Because in science, you're not necessarily trying to be perfectly true in all instances. You're trying to predict the world around you accurately. And Newton's laws do that in a great variety of situations. But relativity does it correctly in those situations and more situations. So that makes general relativity better. But a truth in mathematics by definition, cannot be overturned once proven. The theorems that we proved today about prime numbers and about the square root of two, there is no data that could overturn that. They just are true. They are metaphysically necessary, if not logically necessary truths. Uh, there is something of a debate there. I'm not quite sure which side I stand on that, but that is really aside the point. Another thing which is closely re related to the previous point is that mathematical investigation is a priori, which just means prior to investigation. And physics is, almost all of physics is entirely a, po a posteriori, being based on observation. There is some theoretical physicists, physics that is a priori, but it, no one really cares about it until it has some a posteriori verification, aka the scientific method. So until the scientific method is applied, uh, physics isn't treated as a law, but that means it's not a priori. That means it's a posteriori. And so that's another huge difference between these worlds. And so these things, as you can see here, math is something more like uh, poetry with numbers. And then physics is all about looking at like rocks and atoms and waves and all these things. What could this have to do with each other? These are entirely different worlds of thought. Yet, math is very, very applicable. How applicable exactly? Well, one thing, one thing that is a huge part of this argument is that mathematical theories have been formulated that then made accurate predictions that were not part of the initial evidence that the theory was constructed out of. So when you're doing science, you construct a theory using some kind of evidence, and then you try to make predictions. And then you try to see if those predictions actually happen. Some examples of what this is looking like. So when Newton had his theory of gravity, we didn't know about Neptune yet. But And then when people started like uh, keeping data on the orbits of planets, they noticed that things were off a little bit. And then someone calculated, well, if there was a planet like right there of that mass, then that would explain why, why our data is wrong. And then someone took their telescope and they found Neptune. So that's a pretty big deal. We didn't know about Neptune when we were coming up with Newton's gravity, and yet Newton's gravity predicted Neptune. Uh, similar, uh, Maxwell's equations predicted the existence of radio waves before we ever knew about radio waves. 
Einstein predicted time dilation, gravitational lensing, and gravitational waves. Time dilation is the has to do with the uh, the fact that uh, when you travel close to the speed of light, then time actually slows down for you. And that had never been measured before, and it eventually was measured. But I, but, but when Einstein came up with his relativity, we didn't have any evidence at all of time dilation. So that's surprising that you can come up with a theory that predicts that. Gravitational lensing is the fact that gravity affects light, which we had no evidence of until we eventually found it after Einstein already had formulated his theory. Gravitational waves, you might even remember this from the news. These were only discovered, I think, five or six years ago empirically. But Einstein's theory of relativity has the prediction of gravitational waves probably something like 100 years before we actually discovered gravitational waves actually out there. So this is also very surprising that you could have a theory that far ahead of its time. Uh, Peter Higgs also uh, predicted the existence of an actual particle using pure mathematics. And it actually existed. But they had no evidence for it at the time other than this abstract mathematical theory. And then they went out and they found one in, uh, in really intense, I think they're in particle colliders. And uh, something to notice here is any finite data set can be modeled by infinitely many mathematical systems. This is very this is a very, very easy thing for a mathematician to do. I could I could have given you a proof of that during this talk, but I'm choosing not to. The point of this is that it's not like there is only one theory of gravity or like five hypothetical theories of gravity that could predict the things that we observe. There are infinitely many, and most of those will not predict the existence of Neptune or time dilation or gravitational lensing or gravitational waves. So the fact that the theories that we do in fact come up with, like on our first try, actually find these things is pretty crazy. That's not, it's not at all obvious that that would actually happen, but it does happen. Another thing is that if you talk to a physicist or a mathematician, none of them are going to tell you that, it, that math is just some kind of convenient way of expressing the laws of physics. And then if you wanted to, you could express it some other way. No, they're not going to tell you that. They're going to tell you that mathematics is the way to express the laws of physics. There is not some other different way to do it that would make math just a convenient way of doing it. Uh, and I have here, i.e. the philosophy of conventionalism is false. You might have heard some talk about conventionalism if you've seen other videos on this, but conventionalism is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea in the philosophy of mathematics that math is really just, uh, it's just a human convention. It's not actually really true or false. It's just something that we made up. And math is neither true nor false, but, uh, but we come up with it. It's convenient. It happens to work. It's not like one plus one is really equal to two or anything like that. It just helps us out to say that. Uh, and this point is to say, this is false. Conventionalism is not correct. Uh, it's also far from obvious, at least to me, why the universe must have had mathematical laws in the first place. You could have had examples of the universe that aren't like that. And I'll, and we might talk about some of the what that might have looked like later uh, if the objection comes up. And so even if we do take for granted the assumption that the universe does or is mathematically describable, why should this math go anywhere beyond basic addition and multiplication and things like that? 
Why should we find I, I, mathematical ideas that take a graduate degree to even like read out there in the world? Why should why should that be the case? That's not clear at all. Why you would find that kind of math rather than just simple math out there? Like you could have a law of gravity that's like just like the gravity force is always seven or something. Why is it not that? Why is it general relativity instead of that? That's not clear. It's also not clear that if you have more advanced mathematical laws, that they should be beautiful ones. And uh, physicists and mathematicians who have studied these areas will tell you that these really are beautiful theories up to uh, meeting the criteria, the kind of criteria that I laid out as beautiful mathematics earlier. It's also not clear why any of these mathematical laws of nature should be simple enough for us to even understand them. This is kind of the opposite of the first point uh, of this first, uh, the first sub point about it not being obvious that math should go anywhere beyond elementary arithmetic. Why should it even be within our reach? There definitely is mathematics outside of human reach. We actually know this now uh, via, via some mathematical proofs, actually, we know this now. I don't have this on the slide, but look at the girdle incompleteness theorems. There literally are mathematical truths that mathematics can never discover on its own as provably true. And these things, will we would never be able to grasp a proof of that with our minds. The proof of an unprovable thing. So how, why is it that we even can understand? Things get so complicated. Why can we even understand them? That's not obvious. I just want to emphasize that. And just I want to give a quick example of a relatively easy example of uh, this kind of physics-math interaction, Newton's theory of gravity. Newton's gravitational equation is F equals G M1, M2 over R squared. M1 and M2 are masses of two objects. So M1 might be the mass of the Earth. M2 might be the mass of the moon or something like that. R is the distance between the two objects. And G is a constant. We know what the constant is, or at least we approximately know what it is, but it's just a constant. That's all you really need to know. And then the force tells you, roughly is going to tell you how quickly gravity accelerates these objects towards one another. So when we look at this, this is a mathematically beautiful theory. Looking at some of the criteria, being general, well, there are only two factors that matter, distance and mass. Well, that's pretty general. That applies to lots of situations. Uh, simple. So here actually is something that a lot of people don't really realize, but the idea behind an inverse square law, like uh, a constant divided by R squared, is based off of the following idea. If you have a, if you have like say a light source in three dimensions that's shedding in all directions, then the brightness of that light, R, like a distance R away from the center, is going to have brightness one divided by r squared. And so the idea here, conceptually, is that gravity is doing the same thing as that. That gravity is kind of dispersing itself through space somehow in the same way that light does. Uh, I hadn't thought about this before, but this might be why some people think gravitons exist, because there is this kind of dispersion effect. And it would make a lot of sense for an actual particle to exist that communicates gravity if that is true. So that's cool. Uh, permanence, well, the geometry of spheres is, well, of permanent mathematical interest. And because we have this kind of idea that it's coming from the way that light spreads out in spheres, 
Well, that that means that the mathematics behind Newton's law of gravity is uh, permanent. It's going to be around forever. Uh, abstraction? Well, it is quite abstract. We don't uh, similar to the generality. There's not a lot of things we need to know. For example, we don't even need to know how big the stuff is. And so that's pretty abstract. We're also not even talking about atoms anymore, really. We're just talking about masses. They don't even necessarily have to be atoms. If there were some other kind of particle out there, maybe antimatter, say, that would satisfy this too. So that's abstract. Uh, significance? Well, this was able to make really deep insights into the way things are. For example, once you know Newton's law, you can explain why planets orbit in ellipses rather than circles or some other shape. This law tells you why that is true. Uh, another thing to point out is that it's not like it had to be this way. You could create your own universe where the law of gravity had a different constant than two right there. And then it wouldn't be beautiful anymore. It wouldn't come from this nice idea about light spreading out anymore. It wouldn't have this same idea of spheres built into it anymore. But it would still be a law of gravity. It would still work. And you would get different predictions that aren't as beautiful because they aren't, they don't turn out, the mathematics would not turn out very nice if that number was anything other than two. It's also not clear why this idea of physical objects attracting each other would have anything to do with Euclidean geometry of three-dimensional solids at all. That's not obvious to me. Gravity is not geometric. It's a concept of things attracting one another. Why would geometry play a role here? Not clear, again. And just as an example, this is kind of a joke, but there are certain attractions are not have nothing to do with geometry, like human attraction. So why, why couldn't gravitational attraction be more like human attraction than about spheres? Why? That's, there's, you can't really answer that in a nice, quick way without just kind of saying, well, that's ridiculous. But it's not ridiculous. I don't think it's ridiculous. I don't think the laws have to be mathematical like this, and they certainly don't have to be beautiful. They could have been very ugly. So here are all the premises of our informal argument put together. Math is its own little world with lots of crazy impossible ideas that people came up with kind of just for fun. Point two is just that it would be really surprising if all these like game mathematical games that people came up with actually were relevant to the real world. Premise three is that, well, these little mathematical games actually are out there in the real world, and so surprised by that. Formal argument, I'll read this out fully. This is a logically valid argument. Uh, whether or not you think it's sound will likely depend on what you think of the stuff that I've just said. But premise one is mathematical concepts arise from aesthetic impulses in humans and have no causal connection to the physical world. Premise two, it would be surprising to find that what arises from the aesthetic impulse in humans and as no causal connection to the physical world should be so significantly effective in physics. Three, the laws of nature can be formulated as mathematical descriptions, which are often significantly effective in physics. Four, therefore, it is surprising that the laws of nature can be formulated as ma mathematical descriptions that are often significantly effective in physics. So that's a mouthful, but that is a logically valid argument. If you accept premises one, two, and three, four follows by the rules of logic. All right, so I, I'll go through the objections later. That took a little longer than I thought it would. It's all good. Those things work out. So, I mean, at this point, we could either, like, go through some, like, objections that I kind of thought through or, like, 
seen in the chat or things like that. Or we could just kind of go through like your objections in your presentation because I think they'd be more thorough um, in terms of like dealing with like the most common things. So what do you prefer, Will? We have probably like 15, 20 minutes or so. Uh, so maybe go through some objections. I can I made some slides about the objections that you sent me and a few others. So we could go through those. Or go through in the chat and I can talk sure. about them. Sure. Um, so, okay, sure. So. One of the first things I'll bring up, I don't know if this is necessarily uh, implied in what I said to you, but I think a common thing people would think are, uh, so obviously it's assumed that when we're studying like physics or things, uh, the laws of the universe and the laws of nature are orderly, right? Um, it would seem that their order have structure, they're, co they're constant. Um, and wouldn't mathematics be similar to that? So I'm kind of curious with that objection, yeah. like what do you, yeah, exactly. Wouldn't a universe exhibiting regular necessity have mathematical yeah, well, laws? Well, I'd love for you to For one thing, I would say no, not necessarily. Here. The universe, as I said, could have been non-regular. Here are some examples of non-regular universes. If you look at certain ancient non-Jewish creation myths, you'll find that their initial state was literally chaos, which is which in their thinking was the absence of order itself. And so people already have these ideas of a non-regular universe. And then again, I mentioned maybe a universe where the only regularity is that like one plus one is two and things of that nature, but there's nothing more than that. And then uh, this draws on kind of uh, some arguments from other areas, but uh, this idea of Pointland, if you've read a book, if you've read a novella called Flatland, you'll know what Pointland is. But it's all, I also kind of like to think of it as a Boltzmann brain world. So the idea here is a, it, it would be a universe where um, only a single conscious point exists that is constantly deluding itself into whatever it feels like believing. Such a universe could maybe, at least maybe exist. Boltzmann brain worlds are predicted to be possible by physics, and these universes would not have any order to them at all. They would be entirely based on some kind of mind and whatever it feels like thinking about. That's not orderly. That's not mathematically irregular. And so those would be counterexamples to the idea that a right that a universe has to be regular. Also, even if you assume regularity, there are types of non-mathematical regularity. And even if you assume mathematical regularity, you can't necessarily predict anything. For example, the prime numbers are defined in a certain way that makes them, well, logically defined. But you, but it's really, really hard to find patterns in the prime numbers. Look up the Kolatz conjecture if you're interested in that. Well, that's even worse. The Kolatz conjecture is a giant mess. But I think the most important thing is when people say this, they're I, I really, I think people are really begging the question here, because what they're saying is, wouldn't a universe exhibiting regular mathematical laws necessarily have mathematical laws? And that's begging the question unless you can prove that the universe necessarily must be regular. But I, as I've said, I don't think that's true. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to a question from the live chat here from Oliver Catwell. Thank you, Oliver, for your question. And thank you for joining us. I saw this was your first time uh, joining us today. It says, Will, do you have any thoughts on the idea that chaos argues against determinism because neural networks are so complex that they can't be predicted based well, on chaos. physics and whatnot? Um, I don't know if he's talking about chaos in the sense I just had on this slide or chaos theory. The chaos on this slide, so he, he started talking about neural networks. Uh, just so for people who don't know this, neural networks is, it's, uh, it's related to artificial intelligence, but it's also a mathematical idea. 
the the idea is you're trying to come up with systems of mathematical equations that kind of mimic the way that neurons fire and then try to use that to make a machine kind of act like it's a person even though it's not a person that's the idea of a neural network and so what, what was the question again Uh, the question said, uh, do you have any thoughts about chaos art that chaos argues against determinism because of neural networks that are so complex that they can't be predicted based on physics and whatnot? Uh, yeah, so if you're talking about determinism in the strictest sense, um, well, chaos theory, no, because what chaos theory is all about, it's a, it's a mathematical theory. The idea of chaos theory is that... Um, Things, it's, it's not that it's not deterministic, it's that tiny, minuscule changes are unpredictable by us in their consequences. Uh, an example would be weather. Weather is a chaotic system. We can't predict weather like further than like two weeks out. And that's not because we don't have good enough computers or that we don't know enough physics. That's because weather is chaotic. Weather is, you, you can change something by a few numbers after the decimal place in like one location and then two weeks later, there's going to be like a tornado now instead of no tornado. So weather is like that. Um, I don't think it would undermine logical determinism, but it would undermine the idea that we can logic that we can deterministically predict the future. Uh, chaos in the sense of my example, yes, that would under in the creation myth example, that would undermine determinism. Awesome. Uh, kind of not necessarily a question, but kind of like a question or a statement here from Craig Nightwolf, who says, not sure how it is surprising is a valid conclusion. How he says is, what I mean is I don't know how you can have a valid, let alone sound argument when the conclusion is it is surprising, which is subjective and irrelevant. So Chris, if you have thoughts on that. Oh, well, it depends on how you define surprising. You could uh, say, suppose you define the word surprising as having a sufficiently low probability. Then that's not subjective, that's objective. At least in some sense, objective. Uh, secondly, even if it is subjective, that doesn't mean it's not logically valid. I could say, I could give an argument, premise one, if I am happy, I will eat a sandwich. Premise two, I am happy. Premise three, therefore, I will eat a sandwich. That's valid. That's logically valid, and it involves a subjective idea of me being happy. And so that's, that's, not, a, that's not a good way to criticize an argument. You could, you could, of course, quibble about what, sur yeah. you could quibble so, about so what surprising means, but that doesn't mean it's not logically valid. That, that would mean, though, that you're, you might be in danger of equivocating based on that. So given like what you know about the laws of mathematics um, and their applicability to the universe, do you think there's a low prior probability given, let's just uh, say atheism, that these laws would apply to the uh, universe to regarding an mathematics? Example, I think the place where this argument really becomes a killer is the idea, it's when beauty is coming in. Like with the example of, a, let me go back to the example of Newton's law, Newton's law of gravity. So look here, the, the part where I'm saying, well, it could have been some other law for alpha not equal to two. Well, like there is only the one law, at least that I can think of that there's any beautiful explanation for. That's probability zero. That's even, that's, it's really, if that, like, if that alpha is a random number in any sense, and I, I'm on atheism, I see no reason why it would not be some kind of arbitrary number, then why would it be the number that gives us the most beautiful version? I don't, I don't see any explanation for that on an atheistic perspective, unless you think it's necessary 
Unless I think it's necessarily true that alpha equals two, but I don't, I don't think that could be supported. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, another question here um, from Plantiga's bulldog, Kyle Wilmer. Uh, he says, I know there's a debate between hidden variables and quantum mechanics. If those don't exist, is there math at the quantum level? Um, I have to, I, I'm sorry, Plantiga's bulldog, but I have to claim ignorance here. I don't know. I don't know enough about quantum mechanics, but is there about to, about what you're actually saying but whether or not mathematical laws are valid at the quantum level i think it would it maybe depend on your interpretation of quantum mechanics there are interpretations where maybe not i would have to think more about it but there are interpretations that are completely deterministic and so math would still be valid in the quantum level on those and even if it's and also even if one plus one is not equal to two on the quantum level that's not what numbers are. Remember, numbers, if they exist at all, are abstract. The fact that one plus one equals two is not a physical fact. It is a mathematical fact. And mathematics has nothing to do with the physical world. So one plus one is equal to two, no matter what you think and no matter what quantum mechanics says. Awesome. Um, there's a few different ways we could take this in the last like a uh, little bit of time we have. But do you think there's like maybe like one more objection that you might bring up that's like a really common one that you think is probably one of the better ones that you'll see like to this argument? Let's see. Oh, well, there is the one that's like you're the, the point being that the conclusion doesn't actually have the God exists. But I have a conclusion slide for that. So we'll do that right before we end. OK, sounds good. Um, so we'll go. Uh, off to yeah. And then well, there's this one. There's this one. This is basically, uh, I've seen, I think this is the one that if you've seen uh, the videos about rationality rules and Craig and the and capturing Christianity and that whole conversation, this gets brought up in uh, Dr. Craig's critique of what rationality rules says. The And I've seen uh, criticisms of people saying similar kinds of things that math works because we just tweak it until it works or that math is nothing more than man-made axioms and their logical consequences. That's just straight up wrong. That is very, very incorrect. So this is, there are a couple of different things that could be going on here. I think it's a straw, either a strawman or equivocation between what math is and what physics is. And that's why I spent so much time defining math very carefully. It is absolutely not man-made. It is not. What you can do, you can formulate a mathematical theory based off of axioms of your choosing, but that does not imply that math is man-made. Whether or not the axioms are true has nothing to do with you. And so that would not mean that it is man-made. And also, if you're going to say that math is man-made, that would imply that math didn't exist until we existed. And that would be a problem because then uh, the laws of nature would not be mathematical prior to human existence. That would that seems very wrong. And even if that were true, that would almost require theism to be true for there to be that drastic of a shift in the nature of the universe upon human existence. So I don't think that's a good direction to go. What I think this a person objecting on these grounds really means here is that uh, if that we can change the underlying assumptions of our physical theories to different mathematical frameworks until our physical theories work. So it's not math that you're changing. You're changing the assumptions of your physical theories. And so, but if if I'm wrong about this, if the person making these objections is not equivocating or confused about the, def the differences between math and physics, then what they're saying is conventionalism. But on conventionalism, as I mentioned earlier, one plus one equals two is false. So I think conventionalism is absurd and can be quickly rejected out of hand. 
as a non-option. Uh, also, another point we could make with this is if you actually, if you are accidentally equivocating and you're talking about changing your physical theoretic assumptions, then appealing to some kind of a paradigm shift in your assumptions does not explain why there is a paradigm that works at all. It could be possible, as we've said before, that there is no framework that works, that describes things mathematically. And even worse than that, it does not describe why any paradigm that works is going to be beautiful or elegant is another way that mathematicians will often say they were beautiful, will often say elegant instead. Uh, also, another thing that makes this even worse is it kind of, uh, this whole equivocation often assumes that math is all based on like real world stuff. I just want to give it ex some examples of how ridiculous that is. So here's one of the foundational axioms that's pr pretty much all of mathematics today relies on, the axiom of choice. The axiom, the axiom of choice allows you to make infinitely many selections of objects within an infinite list of lists. You can't do that physically. It's not how that works. We don't have the ability to choose infinitely many elements out of an infinite list of lists. And so that's, that's not something we can physically do. Also, the existence of infinite sets. And what follows from these kinds of axioms, the worst one, I think, is the Bonnock-Tarski paradox, which is a mathematical theorem. So it's metaphysically necessary in its truth that says that there is a way you can cut up a sphere into a finite number of pieces. I think it's six or seven. And then you can shift those pieces around and you end up with two completely identical spheres of the same size and the same everything. And that would deny the law of conservation of mass. And so that's definitely not physical. Uh, there's also something called Cantor diagonalization. You can look that up. The idea that I'm getting at there is that there are different sizes of infinity in mathematics. Some are bigger than others. And we see nothing in our real world that would suggest anything like that. Hmm. Nothing in the physical world. In our mental world, we can come up with all kinds of things. But in the physical world, two different infinities, much less infinitely many infinities. Eh, no, no, that's not there. I don't see that. Someone, Someone's found it. Show me. But... Awesome. Oh, uh, we'll one last question here before we give you uh, a chance to do your conclusion. It says, uh, do you think there's any apologetic value in the relationship between the Trinity, the cross, and the golden ratio? So a little bit different aspect here, but curious on your thoughts here, Will. Yeah. So for just in case there are people who don't understand what that is, the Trinity is a doctrine of Christianity that states that God is one in his being, his essence, and three in person. So there are three, uh, a way you might think about it is there are three you can think of it as like three conscious minds that are all part of the one being that is God. And then the cross, well, I, I think people here are going to know what the cross is. And the golden ratio is um, a, it's a particular mathematical concept that comes up a lot in a lot of different places. Uh, but it's, it's a very beautiful number for a variety of reasons. I could give a whole talk on why the golden ratio, on the, why the golden ratio is beautiful. But I think what the person is probably thinking of here is that the golden ratio is very, comes up a lot in art because uh, if you do if you draw like rectangles that are like golden ratio to one in their like side length ratios, then that's a very it's a very pleasing shape. You can find it all across art. And is there a I guess if you're gonna argue from beauty, if you're gonna do an argument from beauty, you might wanna you might wanna bring that up. And then you might wanna you could tie in the 
aesthetic beauty, the, the visual beauty of it with the mathematical beauty. If any, for someone who wants to talk about this, uh, you can find my email on my blog and you can email me and we can talk about this. I, I would want to chase it down. That's an interesting idea. Uh, there is links, again, to remind of everyone down below to Will's blog. You can follow Will's writings and converse with Will Craig. Maybe you can't get in contact with William Lane Craig. You can talk <laughs> Craig. Yeah, not as likely. <laughs> hey, one day you're going to be hot stuff, man, and you're going to need like 18 secretaries, and it's going to be epic. Uh, but for now, I know you have a conclusion kind of lined up here to talk about, so I'll give it to you kind of to wrap things up here. Yeah, so this is hearkening back to the point where, well, in the four premises before, we never actually arrived at the conclusion that therefore God exists. So I want to do that really quick. The first four premises are the same. Again, it's a logically valid argument. It, you, you do have to define your terms. Particularly, you do have to define the word surprising. That's fair. But whatever we mean by surprising, I think is going to be universal here. It is if the if the points in my argument work, then it is about the beauty and all of the different ways the universe might have been. It is rather surprising that it is this way. And the idea of how you get to five is I've only ever heard one actual explanation of this that I think makes any sense. And it is that the universe was created by an omniscient mathematician, essentially that the reason that the universe obeys mathematical laws is because it was created by a being who loves mathematical beauty and wanted to share it with creatures that he created. And so I think that entity is plausibly God. And I've, I'm not aware of any other explanations of this. And I will also note that the Nobel Prize winning physicist Eugene Wigner, who wrote an article about the miracle of the appropriateness of mathematics also did not provide any explanation. That's why he called it a miracle, because he had no idea. And uh, there are some references for um, some information from this slide. Uh, if you want to learn more about math and what we think about what mathematicians think about it, G.H. Hardy's A Mathematician's Apology is a great book. Uh, the word apology is the it's apologetics. It's an apologetic for the mathematician of why mathematics is important. And Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions, is a really, really interesting short novella that involves ideas of math. It's really good if you want to understand what higher dimensions are. It's really, really good for that. The, whole, the book mo mainly takes place in a two-dimensional world. And then one of the two-dimensional beings gets lifted up into the three-dimensional world and like learns to see like perspective and shadows and things like that. It's really, really interesting. I highly recommend the book. Awesome, Will. Man, there's so much good stuff that you covered here. I feel like I actually learned so much in just this short time. Uh, thank you so much for a great presentation. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in uh, to Adherent Apologetics. I encourage everyone to follow Will's work. There's a link to the Mathematical Apologist down below. It'll be also be there via podcast. You can interact with some of Will's work in a lot more detail and stuff like that. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're new here, I encourage you to subscribe, whether you're here via YouTube or podcast. Really appreciate you. And also, a big shout out to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. Your support means a lot as we keep on going, doing three shows a week. Uh, really appreciate everyone's support. It means a lot. And if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash adhering apologetics. Will, it's been so much fun, man. So much great information. Uh, I'm amazed by you and your how with like your love for math and how you can like see uh, the intricacies of the creator, the omniscient mind uh, through it. So thank you so much, Will. Mm -hmm. Yep. And if there are any mathematicians out there, hit me up. Find me. Let's talk. <laughs>
<laughs> so you can always contact Will if you want to talk yeah. about math. I'm probably yeah. not the guy for that. So definitely. University of Virginia website or my blog. You can contact me through email via either. There's the links down below. Thank you again, Will. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Have a good one. God bless.